I'm going to jump right in. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. As I was um, in the scripture again this week, that, that last part just really kind of hit me. And I, I offer it to you in the same way. You know, just how amazing is that? Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You know, do we, do we live by the flesh? Do we live by the, the things that define us, the things that we can recognize ourselves? Or do we live by the Spirit? Let us keep in step. He's going somewhere. <laughs> Let us keep in step with him. And how is he going to get there? Is he going to get there by, by being overly bold and authoritative and brazen and walking to a place and just declaring all these things? Or, or does he go there? Does the Spirit lead us by his kindness that brings us to repentance? Is his grace what paves the way for us to come before his mercy, which is everlasting? Let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is not a human endeavor that we're talking about. We're not talking about making you the best you that you can be. This isn't self-help. This isn't about trying to, to, to manage your, your own life and, and be the best employee, the best husband that you can be. Those are fine things. But don't be mistaken. When we're talking about discipleship here, when we're talking about Christian character here, it's a Holy Spirit activity. And whenever we, we think that this is something that we can, uh, I think it was said earlier, I think, <laughs> I think Amy summarized the whole series when she said this, right? This isn't something that we can try to do by our own will. That, that's going to have its own limitations. We just can't get there by just trying to, to do harder or trying to be better. This is the, the fruit that comes from sitting with the Spirit and letting Him change us, form us, and mold us. In Sunday school, we were talking about how sometimes we learn the wrong lessons. We go through a trial and we come out of it on the other end bitter and cynical. We, we've learned the wrong lessons. Sometimes we can go through a trial and we can come through with humility and grace and compassion and understanding for others who can go through that. That's the mark. You, you see the difference? Did we spend that time in that trial just in, in our own world, in the worldly way of looking at these things? Or, or do we spend this time in the trial looking to the Spirit and spending time with Him and saying, shape me, form me, mold me? That The world needs the light of Jesus. The, the world needs disciples who smell like Christ, who have the aroma of Christ. This is so important for the church to be the church, for us to be a people of the Spirit of God. And I think we're so fascinated with the anointing, we're so fascinated with the giftings, that we often forget about the fruit. And when we can look at something and ascertain it and judge it by its fruitfulness, it tells us a whole lot more about whether the Lord was in this or not. Because we all, we all know this. We, we've been in services, we've seen things, we've heard teachings, we've seen ministries that come and go. And, and you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it's like there's going to be a documentary talking about where things went wrong. Oh, there was greed all the way through leadership. Oh, there was sexual immorality, and there was affairs throughout everything. And it, you, the fruit is born out, right? May we be a people that Christ is born out because of what we do and the way that we do it. That's, that's the legacy. That's who we want to be. That, that's what we're building, not our own kingdoms, not our own understandings, but him, him and all these things. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
I, I don't know if you you ever play those those games where you have characters that you create with like different stats. This is again where I'm going to be a real like nerd. You know, you can have like your intelligence or your wisdom or your strength, and you kind of can set these things at different levels. And and I, and I think you, you're you're tempted to try to to like maximize all of these things. And I think when we think about the the fruit of the spirit or the gifts of the spirit, we're like, I want to max this out. I want to I want to have all of the all of my points that I can spend. I want to put them into into joy. You know, <laughs> I want to try to get all that I can and and try to build this like super character that we can have there. And I think sometimes we think about these things in that way, you know, that I'm like a four on peace, but like a, a six on, on kindness. And the, the, the question I want you to hold this morning is like, can you be a 10? I'll scale of one to 10, I'll scale one to 100. But can you be a 10 on all of these? And, and you might have seen this. This is a, a famous sketch. This is the um, da, da Vinci's perfect man, censored for a church audience. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, th the idea was that there's this perfect human where the shape and form is, is, is just ideal. And look, you can see the circle, you can see the square, you can see the mathematical precision and perfection of this person. Like, this, this is the idealized human, right? And so we think if, if I'm going to be this Christian, if I'm going to be this perfect Christian, I got to kind of fit this mold and I have to be perfect on all of these things, Right? Let's look at the next slide. These are athletes of different sports. Slightly censored, but still, you know, just y'all be mature about this, all right? The, 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 the bodies that, that we have for different sports and athleticism varies wildly. You, you've got the sumo wrestler, you know, and a, and a linebacker, not very good at swimming. <laughs> you, you think about Michael Phelps. He, they, they called him a, a freak of nature. I'm, I'm not speaking ill of Michael Phelps, but he had these long arms. He would have gone outside that circle of the perfect man, right? But what it allowed him to do in the pool was amazing, right? And often the, the idealized part of, of who we're going to be is going to fit what we've been called to be. Do you understand where I'm going with this? I've never met anyone with a 10 on all these fruits. I, I just haven't. Maybe you have. Maybe you know better people than I do. You know, I've never met somebody who's a, a perfect 10. But I don't think it's necessarily because we're not called to have them all. I think it's because when we live life, sometimes it's like we have these tanks of things, these fruits that have grown, and sometimes they just got a little consumed by the journey along the way. And I used to have more patience, but, you know, I got kids. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe, maybe my patience fruit just got gnawed down a little bit on the vine. And so, you know, if it's a grape, you know, I've got like six left. There's still a little bit there, but I'm, I'm working my way through. And of course, I'm talking about your sister. Just, just, <laughs> you know, but, but I think it's not like the gifts. The fruit is very different. Right? It's not about this ideals, idealized person of who we can be, but it's this understanding of what we have for the season of life, what, what we've allowed to grow to maturity, what we have ready and available as we've sat with Christ, what he's preparing in season for us for what we need. You can think about Christ. When, when he was at, at the uh, turning over tables, where was his gentleness? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not going to say he wasn't the perfect human in all this stuff. He was Christ himself flipping tables, full of the Holy Spirit. It was what was right and appropriate for that time. The activity, the spirit-filled activity, what it needs, what, what came out, right? And I think if we try to think of ourselves, as, I have to be this form of a disciple. I think we will limit ourselves. We'll be afraid to move. 
We won't respond and react to those around us with the grace of, of, of Christ. We will, we will limit the Holy Spirit activity because we think we have to fit this mold instead. Fruit is meant to be eaten. It's not meant to be put on a shelf, not to be portrayed as art. People draw a still life of fruit. I've never understood. There's much better things to paint, y'all, than, than fruit. But that's like the go-to. I don't, I don't get it. Um, but fruit gives life. It sustains us. So which one of those athletes, you know, that, that we had there before, you don't have to put them back on, which one of those athletes do you want on your fantasy football team? You know, who can run a marathon the fastest? We have this one idea of perfection. And, and we think that we have to fit that mold. But, but really, the diversity of our calling, the diversity in the body of Christ, the diversity of fruit, the diversity of, of gifts, is a really beautiful thing. So this morning, what we're going to be talking about in this diversity is goodness. Galatians 5.22, again, one more time. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm afraid for many of us, when you read through this list, this is probably the word where you check out. Goodness. It's like, okay. It's a bland kind of word. Like, like I, I, you, we, we struggle. We hear forbearance or patience being a translation. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, all right. Kindness, gentleness. Yeah, okay. Joy, yeah. I'm, I'm down for that one. Goodness, whatever. Moving on. You know, it, it, it's this word that kind of doesn't bring out a strong picture of what it should be, except for maybe this bland idea of not bad right? Okay. If I'm going to be good, that means I'm not bad. And we have this way of looking at this word. Maybe it's one thing or the other. Bland, nondescript. How do you sink your teeth into goodness? You're, you're not alone. If you look in the Greek for this one, the, the word is agathos. Strong's tells us this. It's intrinsically good, good in nature, good whether it may be seen so or not. The widest and most colorless of all words with this meaning. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> this is the widest and most colorless of all the words that could possibly be used to explain goodness. What an interesting choice you used here, Paul. Why, why would you say bland goodness? There's other words you could have chosen, but he went with the blandest and most colorless of all words. And I think in that bland understanding of this, we reduce it to this idea of good or bad right or wrong. George Saunders is a, he's a short story author. Um, he's a little dark, so this is not a recommendation from the stage. It, it's just an a acknowledgement that he is an author who writes things. He wrote this little bit from a perspective of a 15-year-old girl, and I share this because I think it was actually my voice in my teenage years too, that kind of speaks to, I, I think, an understanding that we have of goodness. So he says this, people were amazing, Mom was awesome. Dad was awesome. Her teachers worked so hard and had kids of their own. Some were even getting divorced, such as Mrs. D's, but still always took time for their students. What she found especially inspiring about Mrs. D's was that even though Mr. D's was cheating on Mrs. D's with the lady who ran the bowling alley, Mrs. D's was still teaching the best course ever in ethics, posing such questions as, can goodness win? Or do good people always get shafted, evil being more reckless? That last bit seemed to be Mrs. D's taking a shot at the bowling alley gal. But seriously, is life fun or scary? Are people good or bad? On the one hand, the clip of those gauntish pale bodies being steamrolled while the fat German ladies looked on chomping gum. On the other hand, sometimes rural folks, even in their particular farms were on hills, stayed up late filling sandbags. In their straw polls, she had voted for people being good and life being fun. 
with Mrs. D's giving her a pitying glance as she stated her views. To do good, you just have to decide to do good. You have to be brave. You have to stand up for what's right. At that last, Mrs. D's had made this kind of groan, which was fine. Mrs. D's had a lot of pain in her life, yet, interestingly, still obviously found something fun about life and good about people, because otherwise, why sometimes stay up so late grading you that you come in the next day all exhausted, blouse on backwards, having messed it up in the early morning dark, you dear discombobulated thing. That's George Saunders. But I love that idea of, of kind of, this is where I started. This is where Josh started with this, this idea of goodness. Just be good. Don't be bad. There, there, there's this, this clip. Stop it. If you see bad, stop it. <laughs> and do good instead. And, and this really simple lack of nuance view kind of brought me through a lot of seasons in life pretty well until it couldn't hold water too much longer. Because life gets a little complicated sometimes. This simplistic view lacks nuance and lacks insight into some of what life brings to us. I think this is where a lot of us begin with goodness. And unfortunately, a lot of people stay there. And I think that this is the seed. But fruit needs to grow. Morality in this way becomes trite, boring, simple, and, and, and reductive. Goodness, though, real goodness, is life-giving, satisfying, rich and tasty. In immaturity, will reduce people and situations and choices to this black and white, every choice. It's good or bad. In real life, it doesn't take long for life to give us nuance. The beauty and striking compassion that Jesus had when he found a woman caught in adultery, clearly not good. Easy choice of what the law says. And Christ in that moment, with his goodness and his mercy and his justice and his compassion, looked at this clearly clear moral failure and did not proclaim judgment, but saw the crowd and understood things of the Spirit. He stayed in step with the Spirit, not compromising on righteousness, but levels the playing field. His judgment is just and good. That's goodness beyond morality. Do you see how Christ modeled that for us? Here, here is, is clear moral failure, Christ. What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do? He's going to speak compassion. He's going to make sure we understand ourselves through that lens. Say, go and sin no more. I, neither do I condemn you. What? That, that's a take on morality that is far beyond right and wrong, good or bad, and, and this nuanced thing. It, it's where the, this failure of, of morality meets the compassion and mercy of a God. But it doesn't blink its eye. It doesn't say it's all okay. It, it holds all of these things beautifully together and propels us forward. That's the goodness of God. It's not simple and reductive. It, it's complex and it's challenging. Because when we're right, we kind of know it, and we feel it, and we like it. And we don't want to be wrong. And we go back to this very simple take on what it may be. I find that we are good at theoretical morality in simple situations. But when we get to the details, we tend to get dismissive. Oh, that, that's just, that's one situation. Life is complex. The word that we have here in Galatians 5 is a little bit more interesting, though, than this bland thing on good, as I shared in the Greek. Not terribly much more interesting, 
But it's interesting for this fact alone, that if you, you look at this again in Strong's, it says that this is strictly a biblical term. You can't find this word outside the New Testament. Whoa, that's interesting. Paul kind of made up a word. Like, like Shakespeare. You all know that? Shakespeare gave us words. He made up eyeball. I don't know what they called it before then, but Shakespeare gave us the word eyeball and a bunch of these other things. Paul was like looking through all this stuff, and he's like, I need a word to talk about this through the Spirit. I'm going to just make up a word. I'm just going to combine these things. It, it, it makes sense. It's not like he just made it up out of scratch. Like, like, like eyeball was also, you had eye, you had ball, you put them together, you have eyeball. You know, Shakespeare didn't do something incredibly wild there, but Paul did that same thing. Paul went ahead and, and he, he gave us a word that's like this, this attribute, this quality of this, this goodness in, in this way. And, and it's, it's interesting for that fact, but what, what does that mean? Hopefully when we get to the end, of this, you'll, you'll see why I think this is so important. So Paul didn't use this word in only this one place. There's other places. 1 Thessalonians 1.11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness, your every deed prompted by faith. I love this. We have this concept again of, of fruition, that it has to grow. Goodness is not this choice that you make. God is going to call this forward. God will make you worthy by his power. Oh my goodness, that, that's not like I saw a decision and I made the right choice. It's not this morality of recognizing what is, what is right or, or good and, and, and just giving myself by discipline to that. There's something else going on with this, again, where there's this fruition. God is going to bring this out by his power. God is going to be the one who makes this happen. God brings to fruition your desire. God makes you worthy, not us, not your choices, not your action. Though, of course, they're going to be engaged. Next one, here again, Ephesians 5, 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Paul and fruit and goodness, he seems to have a little linkage here. Do you, do you, you see, it's, it's amazing. Like, if you look into this, he's clearly got something in his mind about goodness growing out of you, about, about when you're spending time in the Spirit. This is what's going to end up happening. This is how you're going to be. This is the quality of a mature Christian who spent time. This, it's produced something in you that's evident as you spent time in the light and, and you came out of the darkness. What a wonderful thing here. And then the final one, fruit again. In Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, that idea of engaging with it, so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. As you mature in this, this is what's going to happen. That's the least fruity of all those, but it's still there if you look. I'm not going to try to make you see something that's not there, but there's this idea of growing into this fullness that comes out of you as we do this. And that's, those are the only times this word is used, as far as we can tell, in the history of the Greek language, which, wow, it's a pretty concise and, and, and consistent view on this. So to recap real quick, goodness is not a choice we've made. Goodness isn't a state of being like righteousness. There's a fullness to grow into, to enter into, to enjoy to desire, to desire goodness. 
It's not equated with righteousness or decision-making skills or discernment. Now, those are good things. Those are biblical things. I'm just saying they're not what we're talking about, right? <laughs> we can talk about righteousness another time. We, we can talk about discernment between good and bad another time. Those are biblically valuable things. But when we're talking about goodness, it's a desirable thing that we grow into. It's a fruit. It has a different connotation to us. Okay, let, let, let's change gears for a little bit. I, I love when we get to do this, when we get to hold two texts that seem to be contradictory in our heads at the same time. All right? So here's what I want you to have. No one is good but God alone, but be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right. Now that's it. Hold on to them. <laughs> what, what are we supposed to do with those things, right? We, on, uh, it's easy to get one or the other, but to have both at the same time, is, it kind of puts us in a little bit of, of, of ill at ease. It's, it's like, I, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to navigate this. So let's look at the first thing in Luke 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The second one in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hopefully they feel a little bit less intention whenever you read these things in context. But back to that passage in Luke. When he gave these commandments to this disciple, to this rich young ruler who came, he didn't give all ten commandments. Do you notice that? He didn't, he didn't start at the beginning and say, here are the things that you have to do. He gave a subset of them. The subset that he gave are those commands that command us how we relate one to another. What, what he was saying is, this is what you're supposed to do. You want to talk about goodness? Let me explain this a little bit more. You call me good? This isn't a nuance. I think the first few times I read this, it's like, he says, oh, you're a good teacher. Jesus gives him this one throwaway thing. Why do you call me good? God alone is good. Okay, now back to the matter at hand. Like, like, like there are two different thoughts. But I think when you look at it, it's one answer. This is one thought that Jesus is saying. Why do you call me good? Only the Father's good. Let me tell you what goodness looks like. Let, let me paint this picture for you. It's this idea of how we relate to each other. It's this idea of where we go from here. Jesus is saying something. His command about goodness and his listing of the commandments aren't random and disconnected. Here it is in the law. And in Matthew, I think we sometimes think of good as a stepping stone to being perfect. Right? Sometimes we think, if I'm good enough, maybe one day... I'll be perfect. And so I should start off making these one things, and then next time I can do a little bit better, and then being a little bit better, 
then being a little bit better, and then look, oh, I'm perfect. It, it, it happened, and I barely even knew it. I was talking to uh, Steve Nicholson, and he, um, he called me a perfectionist in not a good way. And, uh, and he said, you know, have you ever noticed how perfectionism never brings about perfection? How our desire to be perfect never actually produces in us being perfect? Sometimes even seems to work counter to that. And I, he said that to me. I don't know if he had this like loaded up, like ready to give to anybody. But when he said to me, I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, when it, there's like a truth that just kind of grips your soul in a way that it's like, I don't know if that's for anybody else in this room. That's still for me. Perfectionism will not produce you being perfect. That's not what it does. This, I, this idea of being drawn to that doesn't actually ever produce that perfectionism in people. So we think we can incrementally get better. And, and so we just try to do this thing. We, we try to, to, to mend our behavior. We, we try to do more or do less. And we try to, to shape ourselves, form ourselves. And we, we do this and we never actually get there. But yet this command here to be perfect, as our Father in heaven is perfect, I think Christ is calling us deeper with his call to be perfect. What he's saying is perfection is when we love abundantly in a godly way beyond the worldly way. That's what he's saying. It's almost the same message. He's, he's calling our attention to what we've seen. This is what the world does. That's not good enough. The, the world loves that way. We are to be perfect. We are to be godlike in our love. He's calling us to a better picture of what love is when he's calling us to be perfect. You, you want to be perfect? Love like God loves. Where the, the, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, and where your understanding of right and wrong doesn't dictate your love. Oh my goodness. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All of a sudden, it's not this call to morality. It's not this call to, to do less or to do more. It's this call to actually be more godlike. For his goodness to shape you and to form you and to be somebody else that, that, that looks like Jesus, that smells like Jesus. Perfection is when we love abundantly in a godly way beyond the worldly way. Goodness beyond goodness is not sin avoidance. I'm sorry, goodness, perfect goodness is not sin avoidance. Too easily we, we, we view morality and goodness as purity as abstention from things. And if goodness is on the pathway to perfection, we don't want to slip. We don't want to get stained. We don't want to get marked by this. Now, there's some real wisdom and maturity to be found there, and, and this is just to give you the full picture so you don't think that I'm, I'm leaving things out. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's in the book. Very true. Again, that's a sermon in itself, but that's not what we're talking about today. All right, that's there, that's true. We, we could talk about that another time. But when we're talking about this goodness and our understanding of it, I do believe God's calling our attention to something else, and it's this idea of love, perfection in love, practicing this out in love, and, and how we do this, how we relate to each other is a, a manifestation of goodness. But I'm afraid that if I define it just this way as love, you're going to collapse this into the same bucket as you have kindness. And Luke did a great job talking about kindness. It's not the same thing. 
There's a separation here when he talks about kindness, and we talked about, about how looking after the widows, and, and, and we talked about the, this effort of, of what is produced in these other people's lives, the way we relate to each other. How is that now distinct from this understanding of goodness that we have here? Let me tell you about this. Justice may be not kind, but it's good. And it needs someone to speak it, to live it, to fight for it. Justice is a biblical concept, y'all. I, I know that people probably cringe anytime justice is mentioned because of what's been going on in our world. No. Biblical justice, godly justice, needs to be understood and, and, and triumphed in this world because it looks like Christ, <laughs> because it feels like Christ, because it leaves people better off because they've experienced it. That's what justice does. We shouldn't shy away from it just because the idea has been maybe taken or polluted. It's so good. And it may not be kind. It may not feel kind. But oh my goodness, you're better off for it. Do you see where I'm going? Goodness is beyond kindness in that regard where, where this changes the world. It shapes it for the purposes of, the God, of God's kingdom, of his rule and reign. It starts off with, yes, how we relate to each other, but oh my goodness, it's so much more, so much more powerfulness. Goodness has got to be beneficial. Leave the world a better place because you walked under the sun, because this fruit was ripe from your time with the Lord. People say I had good intentions, right? What do we mean when we say that? We mean it didn't go the way we wanted, <laughs> and things went badly. But if you saw my heart, you know that really I had good intentions, so therefore you should forgive the outcome. Forget the fact that I made a mess. Forget the fact that everybody's mad. Forget the fact that people are walking out here angry and not speaking. Relationships are broken. If you saw my heart. Have you ever tried this in an argument, those of us who have had arguments? Right? If you knew what was in my heart, you wouldn't be mad because I had good intentions when I did this. My lies were meant to protect you, you know, and so whatever it may be, when we offer good intentions, we're acknowledging the fact that the fruit of it was not what we wanted and that we've made kind of a mess for ourselves. The fruit's not goodness. Desire has not yet been fulfilled. The fruit isn't ripe. Zealous people have gone off with a desire for goodness, but they're not yet mature. The Holy Spirit has not yet produced that goodness. So we often have these little seeds that we, we go there and we think that we understand this and we, we work for it and we try to get this whole thing, but things don't work out the way that we wanted. There's a very challenging book um, called When Helping Hurts. And there's some very thought-provoking challenges in this book. In 2010, after Haiti was hit by an earthquake, um, there were some communities that, that, that Christian missionaries set up trying to help people out. It's needed, Right? And so when asked to share their bottles of water, snacks, toys, etc., by the children of the community, the Americans felt guilty and they would leave possessions when the child who asked for it. The Americans didn't realize that when they left the community and other groups came to visit, the children had this habit of continuing to ask and never to engage and to always just kind of depend on this charity to keep doing that. So they lived in this cloistered community, never really matured, never really got beyond this community because it's harder out there. So they stayed in this dependent mode of just always asking and depending and, and growing for that. Y'all don't get political on these things, okay? In another volunteer site with a different organization, the phenomenon of begging did not exist. In the second site, the community had seen fewer American visitors to begin with, but more importantly, the Americans there did not give handouts. If someone in the community had a need, 
both the community members and the American volunteers knew to approach the local leaders for assistance. Trusted community leaders were empowered to share the organization's resources with their people in the manner, time, and amount that their locally earned wisdom guided them. In this first situation, well-intentioned Americans had gifts that provided guilt rather than ensuring long-term change to empower the local people. Oh, this is hard stuff, y'all. You, do, do you see that there's nuance here? This is not like, well, there's somebody in need and I have something, so therefore if I do this, then that, it's a good, good or bad. We reduce these things, and all of a sudden our goodness may not be good because we're only worried about, well, I just worry about my own personal righteousness. I'm only worried about the way I feel right now, and I feel compelled because I don't like the situation, and I have something. Let me try to get away from it. And now all of a sudden our understanding of right and wrong and good and bad is a little bit trickier because we're looking further down the road. We're looking for fruit. We're looking for effectiveness. We're looking to empower and bless the local people. We're, we're a part of a bigger story where your personal righteousness is not the end game, where the Lord is doing multiple things over time. If an American volunteer did not, did want to give a donation to a particular child, um, the local leader presented the donation to the person in need. This protocol helped to reinforce an empowerment of local leadership and to avoid Americans being seen as the saviors or as Santa Clauses. He is the vine. We are the branches. But also there's this real temptation to try to just feel good and to look good doing it. That we can be the savior, that we can do that stuff, and we want that spotlight. There's this adage that we talk about. It's amazing what can be accomplished when we don't care who gets credit, right? But that's harder. It's harder to sometimes do these things in a, in a good way, in an effective way, because it's just easier just to do it myself, J just to get these things done, to make sure it's done. To just, I, and plus, then you get the benefit of all this sort of stuff, and it, what's wrong with it anyway, right? This is complex. Here's the summation of the book. The definition of poverty will change depending on who is defining it. With the poor defining it through the psycho psychological and social scope, while more wealthy churches emphasize the lack of material things or a geographical location. The authors in this book emphasize that this can, be, can cause a harmful cycle where North American churches provide material resources and evangelism to the poor, which reinforces the poor people's sense of inferiority and lack of self-esteem, which in turn increases the original problem. Y'all, I know that this is a problem. Because when, when we talk about the good life, what do we picture? When we use the word good life, what are we thinking about? You probably think about floating somewhere with a drink at hand. Maybe you, you, you think about the sunshine. You think about having comforts and luxuries. You think about not having to worry about these things. And so when we talk about what it means to be a good Christian, we kind of bring those things into that idea. So we hear about the poor, we see what they're going through, and we don't think we need to empower them. We don't need to give them social encouragement to bring justice to them. What we think is, you, you need some of this good life that I have. We've forgotten what the good news is because we think we can have a good life here and now by the ways that we understand it. We've confused materialism with the goodness of the kingdom of God. Now, this is not saying that we should not help financially. Don't take that from this, all right? Sometimes it's the most important thing that we can do. This is not a one or the other sort of thing. It's complicated. It's nuanced. 
It takes real work. You have to sit with the Spirit and to be transformed. So if you see a woman caught in adultery, you don't just go off with the first thing that comes to your mind. Amazing thing in that passage. You, you hear that. Jesus, whenever he saw that woman caught in adultery, you know what the passage says he did? He wrote in the, in the dirt for a while. People waiting for an answer. And he's just like, off, like, Jesus? Uh, we want to stone somebody right now, and, <laughs> and we're asking for you to do something like, like what, what's going on here? Why? Why was he doing that? I, it doesn't say. I believe he was praying. He, he wasn't going to be knee-jerk in his reaction. He was asking the Father what was going on. Where are you taking this? What's your heart for the people involved here? Praying for, for his heart. He was, he was fully man and fully divine. There's a complexity here. And I don't think Jesus himself rushed into these things just with whatever was on his mind. He was led by the Father in a perfect way. Goodness doesn't look like I go and bring myself in as the answer or worldly resources as the answer. But that we point to God, his resources, his restored relationships, his justice, his wisdom, his salvation. We are not offering our lives as the answer to anybody's needs. Look, you too could work nine to five. <laughs> Look, you too could sit behind a computer and type for, for eight hours a day. A lot of people probably don't call that the good life. I understand that. But we don't want to present ourselves as this picture of goodness. Goodness is beyond our attentions. It's fruitful action. It's beyond compassion. So we see this from the beginning. Genesis 1, throughout all of creation, you hear that it was good, right? We know this. It was good. It was good in the first page of the Bible. You get to the very end of it, and it says it was very good. That's the seventh time, the word for perfection in the Hebrew language. But this idea that we have in Genesis, the word is tov, T-O-V, which is not how they spelled it, but, you know, that's our English way. Tov literally exists between things. It's not this state of being. It's not this descriptive thing that, that, that something is like it's red or it's blue or it's hard or it's soft or it's metallic. That, that's not the way that, that you describe it. It's, it's not this physical attribute of saying it was good. Tav was this idea of interconnectionness. It's this idea of what's between things. So goodness was described because the relationship was good, because it was producing good things. He could look at the, at the, the world growing with animals and plants. He could say it's good. Look at the way these things are working together. Look at the way that they're reflecting the glory of the Father in heaven. Look at this stuff. It was good. It was good. It's ethical, but it's not about this perfection. It's about love. It's about how we treat each other. The ties that bind us. So where that goodness would have existed, it would have existed between all created things, not just in them themselves. So when God said it's very good, he's not saying, look at that cloud I've made, or look at that walrus, and saying that that's a really good thing. I'm very proud of that thing. He's saying I've made something here that works together. Something that, that displays even the unity of the, the Trinity itself. God, Father, and Holy Spirit. That togetherness, that love, that, that foresight, that wisdom, that, that joy, that enjoyment, that, that purpose and, and belonging. All of that is there so he can look at creation and say it is good. The relationship between humanity and the rest of creation and myself and the way things work, the systems that govern them are overwhelmingly good. Because the word there when he says it was very good is radically good, forcefully good. It's abundantly 
good. And that's how things were on the first page. And then we get to the fall. And the fall is when humanity grabs our own peace and our own ways rather than listening to and trusting that God who created Shalom, the God of Shalom. So what do we get? The only thing that we can give, which is broken Shalom. So what we see here is that God, the heart of God's concern is God looks around at the end of the sixth day and he says, this is very good. He's telling us what he cares about. We have to get past good as a standalone attribute, like blue or red or small or large, and that our goodness is good in relationship to other things. The goodness in Genesis seems to be closer to being complete, to being pleasing, to being enjoyable, to being purposeful, not for our moral purity, not for our moral perfection, not for avoiding sin. God cares about our connectedness, our radical love for each other. So then what is sin? Where, where does that fit into this? I think we, we often put sin in this as, as the Greek lens of missing the mark. That's what the word means. And, and we can understand that in that way, that, that I'm shooting for this thing, but I, I've, I've missed it. And now we've got the, 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 the idea there in Greek that we've, we've got a target we're shooting for. We have this idea that, that we read even before Scripture of, of getting dirty and this idea that, that like I need to be washed pure. We've got all these ideas coming in here. And so if we've got this idea in the Greek and we've got this idea in the Hebrew, we've got all this, what are we actually supposed to take for it for us here today? And this is where I feel like Paul reaching for a word to describe all of this couldn't find something so he made one up you know it when you see it you know it when the fruit is borne out over time you know when it's profitable for the people of god you know it when you're in a nuanced situation and it's hard and it's challenging but yet god's goodness comes through so what does Paul do? He's just, I, I don't know what I can tell it because it's beyond all of us. <laughs> it's beyond the words I have because it's this Hebrew understanding plus the Greek understanding. It's not one or the other. It's somehow all of that, but to the next degree. It's God's goodness being portrayed through creation as we do this stuff in relationship with each other. And when you see over time that his kingdom comes, that his rule and reign is realized, that's what we need. When we sit with the Spirit, His goodness is realized through His people. That the world's a better place, that your life is a better place. That His goodness really grips you in a way that's not bland and colorless, but where you desire this. Because I do want your ways. I don't want the worldly ways anymore. I don't want my shallow understanding of right or wrong and good or bad. I don't, I don't want to try to just make a calculus based upon what's going to give me the most bang for my buck. I, I want real goodness. That whether I have a lot or nothing, I've had a good life. That whether I've succeeded in business or whether I failed in my marriage or whatever I've done, that there's a goodness that comes because I walked with Jesus. That's the word that Paul needed. And I think that he found only when looking at the Holy Spirit of what the Lord was doing in his own life. I'm a word guy. Because I really think it matters to us. Because if I just say, be good, we might leave here with that George Saunders, teenage girl kind of understanding of just do good. But I think the compulsion here is so much deeper. To desire the things of God, not the things of this world. To love abundantly. Yes, of course we're going to abstain. Yes, we're going to take the, the, the righteousness from God. And yes, we're going to live those things out. But that's not what we're talking about. 
the goodness of God, the goodness of a Christian life. It's powerful and effective. It's bigger. It's better. It's beneficial. It's pleasurable. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's between us. So if you've fallen short of this, if you felt bad about your failures, if you felt like a bad person, a bad Christian, I, I don't know that you can walk away from that in a word and just be like, oh, I'm all better. <laughs> but it begins somewhere, right? Let it begin here today. Let it begin here. That your goodness can be beyond your failures. Because if we keep looking at our failures, if we fixate on where we've fallen short, if we're meditating on sin and, and this whole thing, we're focusing on things that the Lord was not calling us to focus on. He's saying, be with the Holy Spirit. Stay in step with the Holy Spirit. And goodness will grow out of you. There's goodness in you. I believe that. This desire that we have to, to be effective, to see things happen for those that we love about, there's this goodness, there's a seed in you. We might not know how to practice it yet, but as we sit with the Spirit, it begins to grow. It takes shape and affects those around us in a very powerful way that nothing else can. So let's redirect our understanding. Instead of standing under judgment, let's nourish our desires for goodness. That's a lot of what worship is. Can you come back up? Meditating on the things of God. Allowing his goodness to shape us, to form us. Goodness isn't a weapon. It's not a measuring stick. It's a calling. It's a purpose. It's part of the spirit-filled life. So we want to pray for you in that vein. Like I said, there, there's all these other things that come to mind. There's all these other ways that you can talk about discerning of, of good and evil. Yes, that's in there. Righteousness, yes, that's in there. But let's redeem this word here today. Let's redeem this. And if you feel bad, if you feel like you've been bad, if that's been spoken over you, if you feel unworthy of Christ's love for you, he looks at you. Even when you were an enemy of God. And Christ died for us there. He calls us to a better purpose. He calls us to a life of goodness. So I'm going to be up front. Again, the, 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 the challenging thing with this series is that we can't just minister to you in a way that just uh, does this stuff. But I think with worship, we settle into this. Focus on these things. That, that where there's a seed, we let it grow. Where there's been a hurt offered to you in this vein, we can correct it. We can speak truth and beauty and love and compassion as Christ did. That's what we want to do.